Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series, The Boundless Compassion of God, with a message entitled, Revival. So turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, as we join Dr. John now. You know, it's been said that the book of Jonah contains perhaps the most remarkable revival in human history. Well, now, technically, it's not true. A revival means to revive something that has been lost. But in the case of Nineveh, the things that they needed most had never been found. You know, as we've seen, that the Ninevites and the nation of Assyria was a polytheistic nation that had designs on conquest. But what effect could one Jewish prophet have on such a city and on such a culture? Well, there are two books in our Bible that contain prophecies directed at the people of Nineveh. Jonah is one of them. The other is the book of Nahum. The book of Nahum is later at a time when Assyria and her capital, Nineveh, was at the height of her power, and the effects of the preaching of Jonah had long ago worn off. By the time Nahum preached, Assyria had already destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. And whereas the book of Jonah is hopeful, the book of Nahum contains no hope for Nineveh at all. The patience and forbearance of God had now run its course, and now it was a very different day. Nahum begins with the words, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. I mean, those words were directed at Nineveh. And then sometime after Nahum delivered that message, the Babylonians came and utterly destroyed the Ninevites so that Nineveh never would rise again and ever become a world power. And I think it's fair to say that had the prophet Jonah heard that God would later raise up a prophet Nahum, Jonah would have had a complaint. Why can't I deliver a message just like that? Indeed, as we're going to see, that's precisely the message Jonah wanted to deliver, utter condemnation. Nahum says the Ninevites were a city full of idols and violence, lust and greed, and now their judgment was at hand. Had Jonah heard that message, he would have said, Amen, Lord, let me preach it. And in a sense, he does. But in spite of it all, the effects of Jonah's message, well, it would be very different from that of Nahum. So let's begin by reading our text. Jonah 3, 1 to 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, three days' journey in breadth. I have no doubt that after his experience in the fish, Jonah would have taken some time to recuperate, both physically and spiritually. It may well have amazed Jonah that God had given him a second chance. There are other examples in Scripture where no second chance is offered, but Jonah had been treated with grace, and he is supposed to learn from that experience. Now, what we are told in the text is that at some time, and we don't know how long it would have taken him, but Jonah finally arrives at Nineveh. We're also told the city is so large that it's a three days journey in breadth. So let's stop for a moment and consider the world of the critics. I've already made the point that a great many modern-day critics argue that there is no way that we can take the book of Jonah as an actual historical event. You know, for one, say the critics, you know, no one could be swallowed by a large fish and remain in the fish for three days and three nights and then survive. To that, I have responded that no one can die on the cross and after three days arise from the dead. 
The difference between believers and the critics is that the critics argue that the universe is a closed system and and God can never intervene into the natural order of things. I've already dealt with that criticism, so I won't go back to that now, but, but for now we come to that second criticism. No ancient city was so large that it would require a three-day walk just to get across it. Let's just say that the average person can walk 20 miles or 30 kilometers in a day. That would make Nineveh 60 miles or a little less than 100 kilometers in diameter. I mean, such a vast city, say the critics, was unheard of. Even ancient Rome was only seven square miles. And whatever the size of Nineveh was, and I've heard several estimates, you know, it seems inconceivable that it would take three days to walk from end to end. And furthermore, even if you walk the circumference of the city, you could still do that in one day. And so, say the critics, this is proof of exaggeration. And so it's far more likely, they say, that the book of Jonah should be understood as either just a parable or some form of a mythical story to make a point. But of course, as we've seen, Jesus, our Lord, viewed the book to be literal. Just as Jonah, he said, was three days in the belly of the fish, he would be three days in the grave, just as, says Jesus. And so since the death and resurrection of Jesus is a historical event, Jesus certainly understood the book of Jonah as a historical book. And that brings us back to the statement that the city was three days' journey in breadth. I mean, how can that possibly be true? But we should notice that the text does not say that it actually takes Jonah three days to go through the city without stopping. Rather, we're told that it took three days to go through the city while he was preaching. Street corner preaching was not unheard of in the ancient world, and it's highly doubtful, however, that a a Jewish prophet would have been given a central place either at the gates of the city or in a primary gathering place. Rather, we have to imagine that Jonah would have been a street preacher, which would have required him to stop and to give extensive messages of condemnation at each place where he could. And furthermore, because Nineveh was not only the capital of the nation, but also because it was a major diplomatic center, the word that God had given him could not be shared quickly. You know, if we read about Nineveh, we also read that it included a population which was very much like suburbs in our day. It was outside of the city gates. Then in all likelihood, we probably have an administrative district that is inside the walled city and a place for the poorer houses outside of it. And in all, both inside and outside the walls, Nineveh was, you know, maybe 30 miles in diameter. You know, if we think of Jonah, you know, making his message plain in every major section of the city, three days is not very long to do it. So what is being described in Jonah seems to correspond quite nicely with what we know of ancient Nineveh. Now let's consider the message. What is it that Jonah actually preaches? And Jonah 3 verse 4 says, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, the question remains, how was Jonah able to speak the language of the Ninevites? But we do know that the language of the day was Aramaic, and Jonah would have been familiar with that. But what does Jonah actually preach? I mean, did he only say, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed? Well, that seems highly unlikely. We have to believe that we are given only the theme of his message. And if we take the message of the later book of Nahum into account, we might get a sense of what, at an earlier age, Jonah might have said. 
Nahum talked about the bloody city, a city full of lies and plunder, where there was no end of her wanton cruelty. Listen to Nahum 3, 5 to 7. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face. And I will make the nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I see comforters for you? Of course, those are not the words of Jonah. And if Jonah said anything like that, we have to imagine a very stern Jonah filled with passion, showcasing the glory of God and his dominion over the nations, a God of wrath who would not let injustice and unrighteousness go unpunished. The sins of Nineveh had reached to heaven and God had taken notice and God was incensed with rage. The day of judgment was at hand and God had determined that 40 more days were all that was allotted to Nineveh and then she would be overthrown. All the nations would gather and see the ruin of Nineveh and she would become a byword of the nations. Whatever Jonah said, it must have been something just like that. There were no cute opening illustrations to grab your attention or to collect a gathering. This prophet hadn't come to give a winsome message. He had come to be God's messenger, announcing that the earth is the Lord's and that Nineveh had fallen short of his demands. You have to imagine that most of the people who heard this prophet had never heard anyone speaking this way before. How had it come about that the great God of heaven had marked Nineveh as his enemy and had now come to wage war against this land? I've already mentioned that Jonah's message came at a key historical juncture for the life of the city. If the dates of the book are correct, then a serious plague had already fallen onto the city. And just a short while previous to that, there had been a a total eclipse of the sun. That was followed by a second plague. The people were already racked with serious political problems. And now on top of this, a prophet shows up and they're trembling. Back to the Bible Canada's mission is to cover Canada with the gospel and share God's message across all demographic groups. But fulfilling the mandate of this Bible teaching ministry requires a team effort. The ministry fiscal year end is upon us and will conclude on June 30th. This year we have a faith goal to raise $325,000 by month's end to bring the ministry budget year to a successful close. We're praying for our listeners and partners across the country to join us in reaching this goal. For your consideration this month, ministry friends have come together pledging to match your donation dollar for dollar up to $100,000. So every dollar given will be matched. Your grace will be met with grace. To give today and maximize the impact of your gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible. We have to imagine a prophet who's a very gifted communicator delivering a message with a great deal of passion. We have to imagine a city that has suffered major issues. Enemies were threatening her. Plague had been experienced twice. There were signs in the heavens. And then we have to imagine that God had willed 
that the message of this prophet would be effectual, that is, that it would strike deeply into the hearts of the hearers. They were without defense against this message. And I would want to stop here for just a moment and consider one abiding feature behind all revivals in history. A revival is a sudden outburst. It's a sudden launch forward in the work of the Lord. You know, in the first great awakening under the preaching of George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, and others, it caused thousands upon thousands to suddenly confess their sins and come to Christ. It set the stage for the Christian ministry in North America. You know, typically, most revivals begin with a rather frank discussion of human depravity, naming sins by name, and making the righteousness of God ever so clear. Sometimes genuine revivals are followed by great displays of human emotion. Sometimes people fall to the ground. Others will simply moan and some will weep deeply over their sins. It's a a breaking of the human love for sin and a, a fleeing to God for mercy. It becomes a people movement and the movement sweeps through a great part of culture or civilization. You know, there are many times when the growth of the gospel does not follow, you know, a slow and gradual growth like we would see on a graph line, but rather there's a long period of moral and spiritual decline, and then it's followed by a suddenness as God breaks in. I pray for that in our country today. But almost all revivals move from talking about God's righteous judgment of sin to a calling to repent and then an experiencing of the mercy of God. See, I can't imagine a revival if if all there is is just talk of judgment. But in Jonah's preaching, there's not even one hint that this prophet is giving them that they might turn to, to God. In that sense, Jonah is so unlike Jesus. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened down, I'll give you rest. He says, I've come so that you might have life and have it to the full. While Jesus denounces our sin, as Jonah did, he at the same time extends God's hand of mercy, telling us that he has come so that the world might be saved through him. You know, we shouldn't take this aspect of the message lightly. It's a wonderful thing to be offered grace. We don't deserve grace, and we're not for the fact that God is inclined to offer it to us we would not even have heard of it. And it is this that makes the message of Jonah seem almost impossible to understand. Had Jonah himself not received mercy in spite of his rebellion, why not tell the story of the great fish to the Ninevites? Why not say to them that from the depths of Sheol, I cried to the Lord and he heard my cry? Why not offer hope? But he doesn't. Only condemnation in such an intense way that the city of Nineveh believes him. Now we go to Jonah 3, verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And one has to wonder, in the three days of Jonah's preaching, how many people heard him. And it turns out that our Jonah must have been a considerable preacher indeed. I mean, way back in chapter 1, we read about the sailors. They heard him preaching about the great God of heaven. And what did they do? Well, they offered up sacrifices and made vows to that one true God. As we saw then, we can't say with absolute assurance that they became converts, but but it is possible. And now something Jonah had never envisioned comes into being. But just to be clear, our text said that the people believed God. It doesn't say they believed the Lord, that is, the God of Israel. 
You know, it would have seemed that Jonah had said very little about that. But the word is, they believed Elohim. He's the all-powerful one. He's the creator. He's the, the ruler of everything. And that tells us that there had been very little gospel-centeredness in Jonah's preaching. And so we're led to conclude that Jonah never mentioned Abraham or, or Moses or the giving of the Ten Commandments or, or the covenants or even the hope of King Solomon, that all the nations would come to the temple of God to seek the one true God of Israel and that God would answer their prayers and provide them the help they were looking for from his holy temple. But even lacking that knowledge, they still respond. Our text tells us they put on sackcloth. You know, sackcloth was a very coarse cloth. It was often made of goat's hair. It was often the clothing of the poorest of the poor or the clothing of prisoners or of slaves. You know, putting on sackcloth was a sign of humility. It's also a sign of mourning. It's accompanied by fasting, by refusing to eat. You know, it meant to pay no attention to the body's needs, but rather to pay attention to the great spiritual needs. All other pursuits are now ignored so that one can give oneself to repentance. I have to contrast what happens here to what Jeremiah would have experienced. By the time that Jeremiah preached more than 150 years later, you know, the northern kingdom of Israel had then fallen and now only Judah remains. But Jeremiah preaches a message that in some ways sounds almost exactly like the message Jonah preached. Jeremiah threatened Judah that unless she repented, God would destroy Jerusalem. And then Jeremiah 26 verse 8 says, And when Jeremiah had finished speaking, all the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people. Then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, You shall die. Now, what accounts for the difference between Jeremiah's and Jonah's preaching? Well, we might say, well, now, Jeremiah was constantly pleading with people to repent, and Jonah said nothing about repentance. His was only a message of condemnation. Well, yeah, but also true that by the time Jeremiah preached, Judah had heard countless prophets saying the very same thing. Indeed, at one point in time, someone had observed that Jeremiah's words were almost identical to the words of Micah the prophet said in a previous generation. You know, it seems then that by the time Jeremiah preached, the people were weary of God. Indeed, in Micah's time, Micah seemed to be aware of that, that in his day, people were in danger of being weary of God. It is the case that cultures, when first hearing the message of a righteous God, often react with shock and dismay. The human heart is a strange and deceitful thing because it acclimates itself and then becomes hardened. Now, there's a key lesson to be learned in this. When we hear the word of God calling us to repent, if we harden ourselves or become accustomed to that kind of a message saying, ah, you know, I've heard it all before, there comes a time when it becomes impossible for us to respond. See, that's what Jeremiah experienced. But Jonah was experiencing a people hearing of the righteousness of God in a way that they'd never heard it before. In this regard, Hebrews chapter 3 paints a very telling picture for us today. It begins by quoting Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, it says, Don't harden your hearts. Don't be like the generation that followed Moses and saw the miracle at the Red Sea, that stood at the foot of Mount Sinai, and then watched every morning for 40 years God supernaturally fed them with bread from heaven. Their clothes and their sandals didn't wear out. The entire 40 years was one long series of miracles, and yet... It was also one long series of rebellion. 
their hardened hearts, so hardened that no word from God, no miracle from God would ever penetrate them again. And so Hebrews chapter 3, 12 to 13 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's the thing about revivals. It breaks the heart that has become accustomed to living in sin. To the people of Capernaum, who probably saw more miracles than any other people group in human history. Jesus said, the men of Nineveh will rise up against you on the last day and utterly condemn the people of Capernaum. For the people of Nineveh heard the condemning preaching of Jonah, accompanied by no miracles whatsoever and no mighty acts, and they repented. But the people of Capernaum did not. We know that to be true also from history. After Jesus died and rose again and the church began, Capernaum saw no church. Neither did the Christian movement flourish there. How about you? I wonder how often you've heard the message, turn from your sins and fly to Christ. Have you heard it too often? If today you hear his voice, repent now, because tomorrow may not be afforded to you. Be like the men and women of Nineveh. Call upon God. Put on sackcloth and fast. Turn from your sin and flee to his grace. Thanks, John. You know, I've heard you say, and I think history has proven it, that when things seem darkest for the church, revival is close at hand. It feels like we're walking through distressing times in the church. Is there hope? Well, there's always hope because we have Jesus, our Lord, who loves us, who loves his church, and has also ensured us that he is acting in love towards the world. Um, so we, we would certainly hope that the dark days that we're walking through are, are days in which God would again break out as in times in the past. Uh, ben, we can't know that for sure. I mean, there are also times of judgment, and uh, we but pray that God would, in this day, uh, revisit his church, revive his church, and bring the gospel again into our world. Uh, certainly, uh, that's what I pray for, and I would encourage all our listeners to pray for the very same thing. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Boundless Compassion of God, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. Back to the Bible Canada is wrapping up another fiscal year. And what a year it's been. God's blessing on this ministry has been so evident and, and we're humbled to carry out the mission entrusted to Back to the Bible Canada. You can continue to depend upon our daily Bible teaching broadcast with Dr. John and his weekly video series. New print resources have been created to encourage believers in their spiritual walk and more are planned for this upcoming ministry year. But none of these incredible advancements would be possible without the faithful support of our listeners. Your generosity sustains this ministry, and together the gospel is being propelled into every corner of this country and beyond. To offer a gift to support this month's fiscal year-end match campaign, would you visit us at backtothebible.ca 
or call us at 1-800-663-2425.